Hi, everyone. Welcome. Um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, my name is Amanda Petrakis. I'm an immigration attorney at the Rian Immigrant Center, and I'll be your moderator today. Um, so before we begin, we'd like to know who you are as well. You can use that chat box to introduce yourselves and your practice areas um, just below so we get to see who we're speaking to today. And with that, I think we'll just, you know, we'll just jump right into it because we don't have a lot of time and we have a lot of material to cover. And hopefully people will join um, as I'm introducing our presenters today. And just really briefly, um, today's presentation is about service of process and probate and family court. And it was designed with the immigration practitioner in mind. Uh, we're seeing more and more immigration attorneys venturing into family court in the context of special immigrant juvenile status cases. So this webinar will address what constitutes proper service and the instances where it may be appropriate to serve a defendant through alternate means. Um, we also ask that you put your questions in the Q&A box below. We will try to answer your questions live, but in writing as the presentation progresses. And if we have time in the end, we may save some questions for discussion. Uh, so please put those questions in the Q&A box below. Uh, and with that, I'd love to introduce our speakers today. Uh, first, we have Abigail Shirk. Uh, Abigail is a supervising attorney at Metro West Legal Services, where she specializes in domestic violence advocacy and family law matters. Prior to joining Metro West, Abby was the program manager for Thurston, I hope I'm saying that okay, Thurston County Family Justice Center in Olympia, Washington, where she managed the comprehensive multidisciplinary team of professionals serving survivors of domestic violence and sexual violence and housing advocacy and criminal justice matters. During that time, she chaired the Thurston County Domestic Violence Task Force. She also helped launch the first camping and mentoring initiative in Washington state for children exposed to domestic violence as part of Camp Hope America. We also have Geraldine Gruvis Pisaro. Geraldine has worked in legal services for over 10 years with a focus on family law matters and is now the supervising attorney for the Family Law and Guardianship Unit at Volunteer Lawyers Project, VLP. Geraldine is also the language chairperson at VLP and represents the agency at the Statewide Language Access Coalition and the Race and Equity Coalition. Geraldine's a member of the SJC Standing Committee on Pro Bono Legal Services, where she is co-chair of the Communications, Outreach, and Diversity Subcommittee. She's a member of the BBA Family Law Steering Committee, and was recently honored as one of the top women in law of 2022 by Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Congratulations, Geraldine. And last we have Karen Bobadilla. Attorney Karen is a dual licensed attorney in Massachusetts and in Peru. Today you'll find her practicing immigration law at De Novo. She represents domestic violence survivors, victims of crime and children seeking special immigrant juvenile status. In addition to her work at De Novo, Karen sits on the board of Massachusetts Association of Hispanic Attorneys, and she volunteers as the probate and family court liaison for the uh, AILA's New England chapter. She sits on the BBA's Immigration Law Steering Committee and a new lawyers forum. Karen volunteers her time as a coach for the BBA's bar exam coaching program, and she was selected to participate in the BBA's public interest leadership program for the year 2023. So very, very, very distinguished presenters today. Um, I'd also like to thank Alex Pareto from KIND, who helped us with this presentation as well. You have our email addresses there if you need to get in touch with us after this presentation. 
And really briefly, this is the agenda for today. We'll do a brief SIG overview of what Special Immigrant Juvenile is. Um, we'll go into very briefly the types of family cases and how they intersect with SIG. Uh, then we'll present rule four on service. We'll present um, different means of alternate service. And if we have time in the end, we'll go through some hypotheticals with you and answer your questions. Thank you, Amanda. So let's start with the overview of the SIGs or SIJs. Um, all of us here are immigration practitioners trying to make it to the family world, the family law world. So um, that's not this is not going to take that long. We know that although the, it's called especially immigrant juvenile status, it's not really a status, but it's a category or a classification that will help your client apply at, at some moment, qualify and apply for a green card. Historically, they was created as a, to provide humanitarian protection to children who were to immigrant children who were abandoned, abused, or neglected, and they were in the foster system. It kept evol evolving, and now um, the definition has expanded to protect children, immigrant children, who have been a victim of abuse, neglect, or abandonment, or a similar state law basis and cannot reunify with one or both parents. Next. Um, the requirements or the eligibility requirements for the SIJ, um, they have to be unmarried under 21 and up to May 7th last year, this had to remain all the time until the adjudication, meaning until they got the green card, but this has changed and now they can marry after the I-360 has been adjudicated. They have to be physically present in the United States. And the state court, or what immigration calls a juvenile court, needs to issue an order of dependency or custody findings, um, also indicating that the children are the reunification of the children with one or both parents are, is not viable due to the abandonment, abuse, or neglect, or for a similar basis in the state law. For example, in Massachusetts now, um, <clears throat> we consider on similar basis the death of a parent. Um, it's also in the best interest of the child to not return to their home country or the parents' home country. And finally, we need um, consent from DHS for the I-360 to be approved. Next. We can, um, if we were trying to divide or explain the process, we can now divide it up to in four steps. Today's focus is going to be on that first step. And as an, as an immigration person, before I start doing family law, to me, um, the findings, the predicate order, the special findings magically appear on my desk because a family law lawyer will do it. And I will see that as, okay, now I can start filing for the I-360. Um, it's a whole process. So I know as immigration practitioners, we tend to think, okay, so this is a pre-step, which is what is defined in, in the rules. But you're really, when you're filing these cases, you're really doing the two cases. You're doing a whole family law case and then if and only if that predicate order or special findings is granted, you're started with, starting with immigration case. Um, you'll file the I-360 once it's approved or upon approval, and after doing a balance of good or bad, um, what they call it the balance of the good and the bad, um, immigration will decide on a case-by-case -case scenario who qualifies for deferred action and children will be able to apply for um, 
work permit or EED based on the deferred action. And finally, after people are eligible according to the visa bulletin, they will be able to apply for their adjustment of status or their green card. So we wanted to take a couple of slides to go back to definitions a little bit. Under the immigration regulations, they have a specific definition of what they call the juvenile court. And that's that court located in the United States that has jurisdiction under state law. And um, to make judicial determinations about dependency or custody, we have the section of the law and the case, um, the case where they're basing this. It's a little confusing for, for new practitioners because juvenile court as a def definition under the regs is different to what we see in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, there's two courts that have jurisdiction over children. That's the probate and family court, which is where, where we're focusing today, and also what we call the juvenile court. Next. And this is where I'm spending a little bit more. We just run through <laughs> several slides. Um, this is where we want to focus a little bit more. So there are certain actions that you can do in, fam in private and family court in order to start with that process. And every action, um, before you start one of, that, of those, you have to keep in mind the best interest of your client, of the child, and do a balance of the benefits of what action you're bringing. So um, each, each action is going to be case specific. It's going to depend on where on the situation your particular client is facing. So the first one is guardianship. And usually you're going to file a guardianship of a minor when you have an adult that is not a parent and is willing to take care and look over that minor child. The guardianship of a minor expires automatically once the child turns or the minor turns 18. Another underlying action is that um, you have to look at the parent's marital status. If they are unwed parents, you, you can file paternity or custody. Usually paternity or a parentage complaint is going to be when the father is not on the birth certificate. And then if you look at married parents, you can look at divorce, custody, separate support. It's also important to look because you're working with your population is the it, your clients are immigrants. You have to look at what had happened in their home country. In some countries, when you get, for example, you get divorced, you can get divorce in courts, or you can get divorce in um, mediation, conciliation, or in front of a notary. So you have to look at what degree they have. If you are, if you, what you're trying to do is to file for a registration and modification of a foreign degree. Um, the all this. Um, are actions that you can file for kids that are under 18. We're playing with two definitions of children um, or minors. Under state law, a minor is, is considered a minor until they are 18 years old. Under federal for immigration, they're considered minors until they are um, until they hit 21 at the time of filing for the I-360 purposes. The last, the last way, and the last action in private family court is what we call 39M or the complaint on dependency. And while we were preparing for, um, for the presentation, we were having a discussion on there's two, two ways of do this. Um, the 39M, the mass general laws doesn't, doesn't say, oh, it's only for this particular ages or not. They actually allow you to file regardless of the age of the child. So the reason we were saying have, you have to be careful and do a balance of the benefits, it's because 
on all the un other underlying actions, there's other benefits that your child, that not your child, excuse me, your client can have. Under 39M, it really fills up, fills the gap on kids that are eight, between 18 and 21. So some practitioners um, will file the complaints of dependency of 39Ms regardless the age of the child. Some others are more conservative. I include myself in there. We save the 39 complaint, 39M complaint when we have a client that has no other avenue and it's actually between 18 or 21 and, and it's on the verge of aging out. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for using the chat and introducing yourself. Great to see a combination of um, legal aid providers and, and private practitioners. So we're gonna get into just the overview of the probate and family court process. So when you file, we just heard about the variety of complaints that you could file. Each complaint is gonna have its own required supporting documents, but most documents, most complaints in family court require an affidavit of care and custody showing a history of who's had custody and what other court orders have occurred. So you're gonna have your complaint, you're gonna have supporting documents such as the affidavit of care and custody. You're gonna have maybe an affidavit of indigency to waive fees depending on your client's situation. And then in some cases, you might also be filing motions depending on what your clients need. Do they need custody? Do they need a passport? Do you wanna just put your relief for special findings in the complaint, or are you also filing a motion for special findings? And we're going to get into the rule four language specifically, but you do need to serve that original summons that you get from the court after filing, a copy of the complaint, and a copy of pretty much any document that you filed with the court needs to go to the other side. When you get a notice for your hearing, you would usually get a hearing date. You do need to serve not only the underlying complaint and documents, but notice of hearing of any upcoming hearing as well needs to be provided to the other party. Um, we're also gonna talk through alternative service, what those are, how to request alternative service and what the options might be available to you. It's you as the plaintiff or petitioner's responsibility to file a return of service. You need to, once you've completed service, you need to show proof to the court um, and, and provide services, you know, provide your, um, return of service to the court. And we'll talk through guardianship. We'll also sort of discuss briefly about temporary orders and, um, and we'll move on from there. Next slide. Um, so where do you start in probate and family court? So you have the Massachusetts Rules of Civil Procedure govern civil proceedings in the Commonwealth. And then there's also the Domestic Relations Procedure, which is specific to the probate and family court. There's times where the domestic relations procedure rule mimics the civil rules of civil procedure, but it's important to be familiar with both and understand what the differences are and if there's any specific differences within the probate and family court practice. Probate and family court also have standing orders. I'll review some applicable standing orders with you today. And then occasionally there's memos. We saw a lot more memos during the COVID-19 pandemic, and I just encourage you to familiarize yourself with um, the probate and family court website and be aware of all of your sources of authority and guidance when practicing in family court. Okay, I apologize in advance for text heavy slides. I don't think they're great, but this is going to be mailed out to you later. And I just think it's important to really look at the language together. So we're on the domestic relations rule, domestic relations procedure rule four, and the summons and the issuance of the summons. So upon commencing the action, 
you are required, you as the plaintiff's attorney are required to serve the summons. So after filing, you'll get a summons from the court. And then typically you're gonna provide that to a sheriff or constable, or you're gonna proceed with service in another way to serve your defendant or respondent who's outside the, the Commonwealth. So here's what this looks like if you're new to the practice or maybe it's been a while. A domestic you know, um, relations summons will have typically the name of the, the case at the top. You're gonna to get a docket number. You're gonna be assigned to a judge. And then there's gonna be some instructions um, for you on the complaint and to the person receiving the summons and the complaint. I encourage you just to review it all carefully. Sometimes there's errors. You should look at the names spelled directly. This, this is your moment. This, from this point on, this is what's gonna be used. So when you receive the summons, review it carefully to make sure that it's correct. So you're obtaining the summons from the court. It's your responsibility to proceed with service and you must serve this, the summons, the copy of the complaint and any other supporting documents that you filed at the time of uh, filing. Okay, by who served? The rule provides that all the process of service should be made by a sheriff, a deputy, or a special sheriff. In the Commonwealth, we have both um, the sheriff's office, which operate on a county basis, and there's a civil service division within each county's office. I, I keep sort of a, a cheat sheet on my bulletin board here, but they do move, numbers change. I encourage you to get very familiar with who your local sheriff is and the civil service division. I typically mail it to them, but I also call and ask, can I fax you over a copy and get that process started if I'm serving within the Commonwealth? And then I typically ask for them to both email me a copy of the return of service and, and mail a copy to me as well. This can sometimes take weeks to get done. It's important to sort of be on top of this and follow up. You also can use a constable who's um, you know under Massachusetts law has authority to do civil service. So your other option, like it says, permitted to make service a process under the laws of the Commonwealth. So if you're in Massachusetts, you're looking at the civil service division of a sheriff's office or a constable. Um, and then we'll sort of get into the other types of service, but besides those individuals, if the rule is for you to serve by mail, you as the attorney can serve by mail. You don't need to have a constable do that. Okay, personal service. Personal service refers to in-hand service on a person. So couple options here. The defendant may accept personal service by a written notarized acceptance of service on the summons or other process. That means going and having their signature notarized in front of another individual who's a notary. This can be done in or outside the United States um, upon delivering a copy of the summons to him personally. So again, that's using a sheriff or a constable to deliver those documents. There is a difference in this rule compared to the rule for um, civil procedure, because you see here, it references specific cases within the probate and family court. So in complaints for paternity or child support um, or a modification, you can deliver a copy of the summons to him personally or by leaving a copy at his last and usual place um, of their home, the abode. Okay, so if you are in a situation where, let's say you thought you had an address, or you no longer have an address, and there's been that diligent search to find that individual, we're gonna get in on further in this presentation about what that really means, diligent search. Um, or if it appears that the defendant is outside the Commonwealth, or you do not have any idea where the defendant is, you can request an, um, an order 
of notice in the manner prescribed by law. So that might, as we move to the next section, might be, oh, I'm sorry, Amanda, that was a, <laughs> um, it could be publishment, publishing in a newspaper. It could look like international service. There's, it could look like mailing a certified copy to their last known address. And then publication has its own very specific rules, which Geraldine will get into. Okay, so that was a lot of text, but really to break it down, there's four major ways to accomplish service. You can accept service. The other party can accept service and sign in front of a notary republic. A sheriff or constable in the Commonwealth or someone duly authorized similarly outside the Commonwealth can serve. A disinterested party at times, depending on the rule, can serve. And then you can serve by publication or what we sometimes call is alternate service. That could be more expansive in terms of alternative service. Okay, outside the Commonwealth. When any st statute or law in the Commonwealth authorized service outside the Commonwealth, you can deliver a copy of the summons and the complaint in any appropriate manner, as we just described. So they can accept service. You can serve by a sheriff or constable. Um, you can request alternative service. You can use the rules of service in the manner prescribed by law where the service is made for. Um, any form of mail addressed to the person to be served and requiring a signed receipt. I personally try to use FedEx with signed delivery as, or any other sort of alternative um, international mail service and or as directed by the appropriate foreign authority in response to a letter of rogatory or as directed as ordered by the court. So there's times where each case might call for a different situation, and it's really important to evaluate what your options are and be very clear from your client as to what information they have, where this individual is, what are the resources in that country, and the resources of your client to locate that individual, and then what information do you need to provide to the court if you need to serve in a different way. Thank you, Abby. That was great information. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Geraldine. As Amanda previously said, thank you all for coming. Um, so now I'm going to talk about service by publication and the famous motion for service by alternate means. So service by publication, when you just don't know where the person is, last known address is no longer valid, or you just simply don't know where the defendant is in your case, you're going to file a motion for alternate service when you file um, the complaint with an affidavit explaining why service on the defendant in person is not possible and the steps that the plaintiff has taken to find the defendant. This, I think it was very recently or maybe about a year and a half ago already, we now have a motion that is combined with an affidavit of diligence search. So it's a three-page um, document that you can put in all of the information and we're gonna go through it. So because we have this thing called due process, we have to serve the opposing party on anything that is filed in court, right? The opposing party has to have an opportunity to know that there has been a case filed, um, know about the case, and an opportunity to appear, file an answer, and object, um, depending on the circumstances of the case. Service by publication is a last resort. The court will not accept um, motion for service by alternate means just because. You have to have done your due diligence in trying to find the defendant and you have to show that in the affidavit that you're going to follow the motion. 
So if it is the case that you don't know where the opposing party is, um, or you have a last known address from like 10 years ago, which you're probably certain that is no, it is no longer valid, on the initial complaint, you're going to provide the defendant's address as parts unknown. You're not going to put the last known address anymore. You're just going to put parts unknown. In the motion for service by alternate means, you're going to provide the defendant's last known address, if you have one, and then fill out the affidavit, um, the accompanying affidavit, explaining why service on the defendant in person is impossible and what you have done to try to find the defendant. Once the motion for service by alternate means has been filed, the court will either order service by publication in Massachusetts, order service by publication in the United States, but outside of Massachusetts, or order service by publication outside of the United States. This motion is going to be signed by the attorney or by the plaintiff if they're um, appearing pro se. The court can also make other orders besides publication. So for example, they can allow services rendered and we're gonna talk a little bit about that as well. I did wanna talk a little bit about filing affidavits of indigency. So when you file a case in court and you're filing an affidavit of indigency, it's important to note that those are only accepted in the, within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So if you have a known address um, or you need to publish outside of Massachusetts, that is not that affidavit of indigency is not going to cover that cost. So your client is going to have to pay out of pocket for serving this person in another state or publishing um, in another state or another country. So it's really important to understand that. So this is just um, so you have an idea of what the motion uh, for service by alternate means looks like. It's, I know it's difficult to see, at least it's difficult to see for me, so I printed out my own form. Um, you have different options to ask the court to approve. So the first one is that you're requesting to provide service by publication only in a newspaper of general circulation in the location that will most reasonably provide actual notice of this case. So for example, you have a divorce case um, the parties were married 20 years ago, but they've been separated for 10 years, and they just haven't spoken. There are no, chil no children in the marriage, no nothing. You don't know where the person is. This is probably the best way to do it. You're going to publish in a, um, in a newspaper of general circulation. The second option is to provide service by publication in a newspaper of general circulation in the location that will most reasonably provide actual notice, and by mailing a copy to the person's last known address. So this is where you do have a last known address of about five years ago. The person's probably not there, so you wanna make sure that you have both. You're gonna to mail to the last known address and also publish in a newspaper of general circulation. And then the last um, option is to provide service by another means not prohibited by law or asking the court to tell you how to publish. The general information part is you're going to put in the information about the person who has to provide the service. I mean, yeah, the notice of the complaint that's been filed, you're going to include the last known address if you have it or just check off unknown. If you do have a last known address, you're gonna tell the court when was the last time that you knew that person lived there. You also have to let the, the court know when was the last time that you heard of, heard of or had contact with this person. And now we go into the attempts to locate. So this is where you do your due diligence. And what has the client done to try to find this person? 
and you have different options. So now that we live in this tech world, we usually can find people through text. We can email them. We can find them on social media. And these are the options that you really need to sit down with your client and have a discussion about um, when filing the motion for service by alternate means. It's not telling the court, I don't want to deal with the drama. I just don't want to contact this person. That's not enough. You have to do your due diligence. And if you can find this person, you need to make it happen. Um, there's also an option, and I think we can go to the next slide, Amanda, please. There's uh, also an option of, have you tried to find this person on Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, uh, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever it is. We can also find people through internet search, just a simple Google search. Friends and family, if this person is your spouse, um, or do you have a mother-in-law, father-in-law, um, people that you have contact with, your friends in common, try to reach out for, to these people and try to get an answer. And then once you do that, what happened? I reached out through Facebook. He blocked me. Um, I reached out. I called my mother-in-law. She wants nothing to do with me. She won't give me his address. You need to let the court know what was the result of your um, due diligence. And then if you have attempted to serve the third part of this um, form is to let the court know that you did try to attempt service, but just were unable to do so. This is in the case, for example, if you go through a constable or sheriff and they've tried to serve the opposing party, but the opposing party is maybe evading service, then you can say, this is, I'm filing a motion to serve by alternate means because I did try to serve through um, constable or sheriff. I wasn't able to do so. They will usually send you an affidavit stating how they try to serve the person. You're going to submit that along with the motion to serve by alternate means, asking the court to serve by another means. And then this form is also signed by the attorney or by the plaintiff if they are appearing pro se. So if service by publication is allowed, the court will mail to uh, the Council of Record the summons by publication and mailing and the order of service by publication. And I do want to make something clear. So when Abby was talking, she did show you the, the summons. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if we have another, I think we do have the, the order. Um, you're going to get the summons, the order for publication, and a copy of the complaint. If you filed an affidavit of indigency, you should also get that, um, the determination of fees and costs signed and approved so that your client doesn't have to incur in the cost for um, publication, also um, for constable or sheriff service as well. But if it is by publication, you want to make sure to send that to the newspaper so that they can charge the Commonwealth for the publication. Next steps after publication, you want to send a certified mail to the defendant's last known address, if you have a last known address. When that um, envelope comes back, it's really important that you don't open it. You want to keep the closed envelope because you're going to have to bring it back to court for the return of service. Um, you want to send the request to the newspaper selected by the court, so the court will tell you where you need to publish. Um, another um, piece of information that is important to understand. Because we are living in this um, tech world, a lot of newspapers have gone to 
um, website only, so online printing. I mostly practice in Suffolk and Middlesex, so I don't know what other um, counties are doing. I know that Middlesex, and I, I'm pretty sure Suffolk as well, they're only doing publication in the Boston Herald and the Boston Globe, because, for example, Cambridge and Somerville, there was a, a local newspaper that recently just went online. The statute doesn't provide for publication online, so it's important to keep that in mind because if you have a client who has an affidavit of indigency, that's fine, that'll be covered. But if it's a client that is paying out of pocket, um, publication in the Boston Globe can be quite expensive. So it's important to um, take note of that. Um, so you're gonna, it's perfect, this is what I wanted. Thank you, Amanda. So this is what you're gonna get from the court when you need to publish. So this is the order for service by publication and mailing. This is gonna tell you when you need to, where you need to publish, when you need to publish by. So it's really important to take a look at those dates. As Abby said, um, this is the same thing as the summons. You really wanna make sure that all the information is correct. I have been getting some citations telling me to publish within for guardianship cases within like 14 days before the hearing, but the hearing is next week. So obviously no time to be able to publish. So you really wanna make sure that you have the correct date, that you have the time that they're asking you to serve. Um, because if not, you just need to ask them to um, provide you with a new summons or a new citation if it's, if it's a guardianship case. So this is gonna tell you when to publish, where to publish, um, and has how long before the next, um, the, the return date. This is a, uh, the divorce summons by publication and mailing. So again, this is you're gonna get a new summons, um, a different summons when it has to be by publication and mailing. So once you publish, um, it's important that you, you're not done and you have to remember this, you have to file the return of service. You have to let the court know that you did proper service and that you're done and that this person has been notified of the complaint um, filed in court. So you, when you publish, first of all, you have to get the original tear sheet from the newspaper. And again, a lot of newspapers are doing this online. So if it if you are able to get the actual newspaper, I suggest that you get two copies. The reason for this is the courts sometimes, because they're so busy, lose documents and things get lost. If, for example, you go into a hearing and service has not been done, the judge will probably not go forward with the case because service has not been proper. So you want to make sure that if you do publish, you have a copy for yourself. You get two tear sheets. Um, to uncut original tear sheets. And what this means is the whole page of the of the newspaper. So not just don't cut out the little piece that says uh, the information about your case. You want to get the whole page. Um, you want to get two copies of those. You want to keep one for yourself and you want to bring one to the court. So if the court loses that theirs, you have yours. And when the judge says service wasn't done, you can say, yes, it was. I have my copy. Um, and then if you did send a letter through a certified mail to a last known address, you want to bring in also the returned undelivered certified mail that was sent. That's why you can't open it. You need to keep it because you're going to bring it back to the court. So that way you're going to let the court know, I served, I'm done. Now we just wait for the opposing party to respond if they want to respond. Um, so there are 
different forms that you can have um, somebody served, right? And as we said, um, Abby went through all the forms that you can serve somebody, but it might be that you have tried all the forms and the only way that you were able to reach this person was through Facebook because they are constantly active on social media, but they are evading service through a constable or sheriff. Um, if it's by a disinterested person, they just they just won't answer the door, whatever the reason is, but you know that you can get this person on Facebook. You could file a motion to accept services rendered. Um, I think we don't use these enough because we're sort of bound by these, these rules and, and the practice. But I think given the world that we live in, and I think we all have to sort of adapt, um, I think if we use these motions to accept services rendered, we could see the court um, allowing them. I have seen these allowed in 209A cases um, for restraining orders. Um, I have not seen them, obviously, for divorce cases because service has to be in hand. But I think if it's something that if you can prove to the court that you can say, you know, we've tried all of these other measures, we know that he received this person or she received um, this through Facebook or Instagram because we have the seen or read um, evidence we could probably try to get the court to um, approve those. So that's it for me. Um, and just to sort of, you know, the rules are sort of your, your guideposts. So, you know, the, the rule as you sort of heard again and again, it's looking to create actual notice. We're looking to have due process and we're looking to find ways to have actual notice. So I think if you are gonna use a motion to accept, um, you know, processes as rendered or services rendered, you really want to show why you think they have actual notice at this point, right? And and really detailing that in your motion and affidavit is really important. I also think Geraldine mentioned about looking out for timelines. Rule 4 also requires um, typically the time for service and, and Rule 4J is, is typically 90 days. So especially when you're working outside the country, it could take more time to arrange service outside the Commonwealth and just really be aware of that 90-day limit for the complaint. If you don't make that 90-day limit, you can request the court to extend the time for service, but you will need to file a motion and you may or may not be granted a new, you know, given a new summons to then proceed with service again. So I just want to talk a little bit about standing orders. Um, I mean, I'll let you hit the next slide. So, you know, during the pandemic, there was increases in how parties could communicate. And so there was a under 420 standing order allows for email service may be allowed for attorneys. I think in most of these cases, you're not going to have the counsel on the other side. So it's important to just really understand that pleadings and other documents may not be served by email on a self-represented party unless that self-represented party consents in writing. So although email, social media might all be your your major list of attempts to serve. It's just important to know that this standing order does not allow for email service for self-represented parties. And it is linked here for you to review later. Um, I just want to talk about guardianship. You know, Geraldine is sort of our guardianship expert and allow her to answer specific questions about that. But standing orders are, are very helpful. I don't do a lot of guardianship cases. But when I do, I look at the standing order to review what I need to, who I need to serve, right? If the minor is 14 years or older, the minor needs to consent. Any person who's had care in custody, so as Karen said early on, it's important to get a full history from your clients before walking into family court. Where has this child been? 
for the past three or four years. I you know get a full history as who's had custody, have there been any orders, has CCF been involved? You know what what's the history of, of the children that you're working with? Um, has there been any other past guardian appointed? Um, are the parents alive? What, are they? Um, wh what's their status? All, all of those things. So I just encourage you to, to do really complete histories and consult standing orders so that you're serving and appropriately. Finally, I, I often hear, especially in domestic violence work, the hesitancy to share where the survivor um, is at this time, especially if they fled an abusive partner. So something to keep in mind from the get-go is this, this person is going to be served with documents from a court that's going to say the county of where that person is, right? So just to be very transparent with the clients that you're working with, if this is Middlesex County, it, it's kind of an indicator that this, this individual is in Massachusetts and they're in Middlesex County. But that doesn't mean you can't do substantial safety planning with your clients. If your clients have a, a real fear of harm or safety and they don't want to disclose their address or their phone number, you can file a motion to impound with the with the family court. So I encourage you to review the uniform rules of impoundment, to review the standing orders on impoundment, and it may be appropriate to request to impound the file from the public. Remember that all family court cases are public files, especially if there's child physical abuse or sexual abuse in your case. And so I just think it's really important when gathering this history to understand what, what are the roadblocks to service and if a client's hesitant to give you information about where this individual is, I, I would investigate any safety concerns and try to address those safety concerns in your filings. And just as sort of a, a pro tip, you are gonna need to sort of plan to bring yourself, your client, their affidavit, everything with you to the day of filing. Each court handles this differently. During the pandemic, we saw some of this done by Zoom or administratively, but most often you need to be heard on your ex parte motion to impound before the filing is accepted because they're gonna, to accept your filing, it would have been said impounded on it. You're not gonna put the address anywhere on these documents. So if you're filling out a complaint, I go ahead and fill up the complaint with impounded on the address along with my motion to impound, right? You're looking to protect those records. And so I'm happy to answer that more specifically. I think we're gonna to move to some hypotheticals, but I would suggest that we just sort of pause before doing hypothetical and, and see if we wanna answer any Q and A's. It looks like some questions have already been answered. Amanda, do you want us to respond to anything else or move to hypotheticals? Yeah, I guess um, there was a question about when a parent is not listed on the birth certificate, how do you perform service? Uh, that was the question. I wonder if you could also speak to what type of action this person can bring or other, other steps you can take to get an acknowledgement of paternity and then move on with the family law matter. Yeah, I, I'm just reading your response. I think that's great. I think um, typically there's a presumed parent, a presumed, usually the father. Um, and so I think you would be filing a complaint for paternity and you would need to attempt service on that presumed parent. And you could do that if you know their address. If you don't know their address, I think you're going to view through the alternate services Geraldine um, outlined. And for guardianship cases, um, you have to stay ask. There's like there's somebody's a parent. Um, so even if you put unknown and then ask for service by publication, that's what I've been required to do previously. Do we have any other questions? I think we have about 15 minutes left, but if there are any other questions, feel free to put them in the chat now. We have some time. 
I did want to point out that I think it's really important that you know the court where you're going to be filing. Um, the registries work differently They're for reasons that I still don't understand. Um, so I think it's important to, if you have questions, if you know somebody else who's worked there and who's done this previously, ask your colleague. If you don't, contact the registry and ask them um, because some registries will allow you to file the motion to impound along with the complaint. Others will not. They will ask for the motion to impound first, have it be allowed or denied, and then you file. Um, same with uh, motions for temporary orders. So I think it's important to not waste your time. Just if you have any doubts, call the registry and find out how they would like things done. Um, same with the affidavit of indigency. I know that Norfolk does not accept the first box that you fill out as um, it has mass health. When you check off the first box and you check off that the client has mass health, it's automatically like you submitted in Suffolk and Middlesex, but Norfolk will not accept that. They still want a supplemental affidavit, which is like a mini financial statement, which is not what the rule says, but that's the way that they work. So it's really important to kind of know where you're, where you're filing your case. And actually, on the topic of contacting the court, I will say um, um, you can try, you know, if you're, you can go in person, you can try and call them over the phone. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> you may not be able to reach a human being um, as quickly as you would like. Uh, but there is another option. There are virtual registries now. I think this was created during the pandemic times when courts were closed. Um, so we're going to be sending out actually a list of um, these these web links so you can you can join the virtual rep registry of different probate and family courts. Um, you look on their website, it tells you what hours the virtual registry is open, and you can sign in that way. It's like Zoom, and then eventually um, your you know someone admits you into the room, and you can speak with someone at the registry. So we'll be sharing that along with other materials after this presentation. And with that, I think we could move on to, oh, did we get a new question? All right, so this is another, do we wanna answer that question now or move on to the hypotheticals? Otherwise we can answer this person um, by email. I will do, I'm happy just to read the question. I will admit that it's, I've run into this experience before. It's not been my case, but a colleague's case. And I, I think it's, it's a difficult situation is the short answer. And my, my instinct is that typically you would move on to the estate if you are aware of who is the parent and that parent has passed away and you're looking to establish paternity. I think you may need to do through, do so through the estate. In that case, I think there was another sibling. And so they were able to do a DNA test with that sibling. It's just a, it's a bit more complicated. It's a multiple step process and, and establishing paternity for a deceased parent is difficult, but not impossible. But I, I definitely would encourage, um, you know, maybe a, a deeper consultation, but I'm happy to see if anyone else has any ideas. And to add what Abby just said, just also keep in mind that um, this has changed, but the reason that you're bringing this action to probate and family court it, immigra immig the immigration issue can be one of the reasons, but it cannot be the only reason to do this. So when you're making that assessment, keep that in mind as well. Okay, we have about 12 minutes left. So let's move on to our first hypothetical. I'll read out the facts. Um, you have screened SIG eligibility for a prospective client, Anna, age 14, 
Anna is presently living with her older cousin, Maria, who is 19 years old and works full time. So um, let's just give you guys a few, a few moments to reflect. These are the questions. What else do you need to know? Right, you only have limited facts here. What case may you file in probate in family court and who would need to be served as an interested party? Um, if you guys have thoughts, you can put them in the chat. Otherwise I'll let our attorneys answer those questions. I'm not seeing anything in the chat, but <laughs> feel free to. Any Here, we go. Here we go. What else do you need to know? You? Emmy Lou, great. Are the parents alive? Where are they? And if the 14-year-old has any meaningful contact? Absolutely, right? This is the history that we discussed. Where has the child been? Who's been guardians? Who's Who's been the parents? Are the parents available? What are the parents' marital status, right? Is there two parents on the birth certificate? One parent on the birth certificate? Absolutely. What case do you think you might be filing in, in probate and family court? Perhaps guardianship, right? Who could file the yeah. petition? Great, Rachel, that Anna can file the petition. And I'm going to hand off my interested party service to Geraldine. <laughs> well, if um, a guardianship is going to be filed in this case, first of all, Anna is 14. So she needs to consent to the guardian. Um, it's important to understand that a child 14 and over has to consent to whoever the guardian, the nominated guardian is. So they would um, sign a waiver and consent. And then the parents in this case would need to be um, notified because they are interested parties and any siblings that Anna has. And anybody who has had, um, who has been taking care of Anna in the last 14, I mean, in the last 60 days. And that could include um, DCF, if DCF has been involved. It could include, um, if the child has been receiving services um, from, from DDS, for example. That could be another um, interested party. So it's important to understand the situation that Anna has been living under and what her circumstances are to know who those interested parties are. But basically, the parents and siblings would be the most basic ones. Great. Before we move on, there's one other Easter egg in this slide. And I know we have excellent um, practitioners here, and obviously we're discussing Anna, but what else would you want to just think about for this family? Maria, we have a 19 year old in the room, right? What's Maria's status? Thank you so much, Rachel. Exactly, right? So we have a 19 year old. So what would, let's say Maria doesn't have status. What what might you think about for that individual? Assuming you want to help, you know, kind of help the whole family. Exactly. If she's unmarried, she could be said eligible too. What vehicle might you consider her considering she's she's over 18? 39M. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> 
Next slide. Okay, hypothetical number two. We've screened Sitch eligibility for a prospective client, Christian. He's nine. Christian lives with his mother, Paola, and recently arrived in the United States four months ago. Paola fled from Christian's father in Guatemala due to domestic violence. Let's sort of stop right there. What else do you need to know about that? Excellent, Tim. Are they married or not married? Question number one, what's our marital status? What's our relationship status? Is that on the birth certificate? Absolutely. Any other questions you might immediately have? Karen really talked about this in her presentation. Absolutely, does Paola need empowerment of her address? I think screening for her safety is absolutely important. I'm also curious just what, what has happened in Guatemala before now? Any court orders, any court hearings? Are there any other court documents or separations that, that we need to know about? So let's say, um, let's say they're married and let's say they've not been to court before. So if you have those pieces of information back and, and she does want to impound her address, what case are you thinking of filing in probate family court potentially? What would be your options? Divorce, separate support, absolutely. I'm going to call on Emmy Lou. What's the issue with divorce? It's so great when your coworkers are on the call, right? Because then you can um, make them force participation. What's that called? I mean, it might be called bullying, but I'm not sure. <laughs> That's how Emily feels about it. Six month waiting period, right? What is the jurisdiction? And and Tim, I think you almost have it. Typically, there's a six month waiting period after you file a divorce before a 1B can be adjudicated, but you typically need one year in order to have jurisdiction over a divorce case in Massachusetts. Six, Six months, months is typically what you might need for custody unless there's an emergency, right? So as you enter this family world practice, you're not just looking at your service rules, but what are the jurisdictional requirements for each of these cases and making sure that you've met each jurisdictional requirement. The other thing, Abby, when you're balancing what actions, if there's more than one available, and because this is a domestic violence scenario, you not you need to be thinking on how your opposing party is going to react. How is this going to affect the family? If he's going to be really mad, can he do something if mom files for divorce, or is it a bit better to not do the divorce and just file the separate support? Um, what What is going to be most likely to keep this family safe, although they're safe? supposedly for being here can he can father access them or not so just on the jurisdictional aspect though if you're looking for separate support if you can't serve the opposing party you can't get financial orders from the court so serving somebody in guatemala if you can get service in guatemala you're not going to be able to get any financial orders from the court um, 
So that's something else to keep in mind. Absolutely. And so there's a there's a custody um, case for married couples that you can do. So there's divorce, separate support, and then custody for married couples who are living apart for justifiable cause. Without actual enhanced service, you're really going to meet hit some obstacles for divorce. And without you know proof of service or and or financial information, you're not necessarily going to be able to do a fair division of marital assets and debt, right? So these are all things to consider. Is what are the the benefits for your client and holistically serving them, but what are the limitations of a case that isn't able to be fully served or processed or get the financial information that you need? So, you know, I think what, you know, Paolo could benefit from is probably a custody order saying that she has sole custody of that, of Christian, that she's able to get passports, right? These things where she's changing her custodial status of not having joint legal physical custody and also seeking special findings along with those, those orders. I just want to say thank you so much to our audience. I really appreciate the participation. It's so much more engaging for us. And I really appreciate your comments. Um, so I'll hand it back to Amanda. I just saw a comment there about Bristol County not allowing the filing of custody only in Massachusetts for, for married parties. I mean, this is, it's just, brings to light, I think what Geraldine was saying earlier that courts are different and do things differently and we may not fully understand why, but um, this is why it's so valuable to speak to your peers who have experience in different jurisdictions. Um, you know, if you have any questions about going into um, a certain court, just reach out to people, they're there to help. So thank you for that comment. Um, we have two minutes left. So there aren't any questions. I think we'll be signing off early. But thank you all for attending our webinar. We hope that it was helpful. And there will be, um, you know, we'll share the PowerPoint and a few other materials at the end of this, um, including the, the recording. So we hope to see you again in future presentations and good luck. <laughs> Keep doing the good work and probate and family court. <laughs>